Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, your kids and the other vaccinations. The focus on COVID and kids being out of school means that routine childhood vaccines may have lapsed. We'll speak with Dr. Timothy Slay, epidemiologist and professor emeritus with the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. The latest thing in retail is a virtual cashier. Don't know what that is? Most don't. We'll talk to the man who wrote the book Retail Before, During and After COVID, Bruce Winder. And Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, just ahead of the official call for the Ontario election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First, the issue of vaccination. Many have never discussed this so much as it has been over the last several years. And with a fourth dose of the COVID vaccine underway, the possibility of a new generation of COVID vaccines coming, uh, there has been so much of a focus on COVID shots that other vaccines have been falling by the wayside. And that in schools, that includes rather the typical school immunizations. Some health units are starting a renewed push for a catch-up of those. On the line with us now is Dr. Timothy Sly. He's an epidemiologist and professor emeritus at the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Good morning. Good morning, Shona. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this whole thing about the COVID vaccinations. It's kind of ironic because at a time when we have been getting more information about vaccines, there's been more disinformation than I think we've ever had before about them. Yeah, I think it's a case of trying to avoid overload. You know, we're trying to get people to uh, to take up this new vaccine uh, and and to keep up with the changes in the administration of that that seem to be appearing every two or three weeks. But and uh, in the meantime, those those basic childhood ones, starting from a couple couple of months right up to teen years, and even the adults with their uh, shingles and uh, uh, pneumococcal vaccines. Don't forget those as well. So there's lots of reasons for it. I mean, people don't really want to go to the doctor's office and line up there if they really don't want to in this particular time. And they they, 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 they find it difficult to, to even remember to, to come along. And so we, we're seeing uh, a, it varies around the world, but the World Health is actually talking about uh, millions of kids have missed their regular vaccines in the last couple of years. I think you're referring to the recent report from the WHO and UNICEF yes. warning about what they're calling a perfect storm of disease. Mm. And it's going to be one of the um, things that we're looking at for lo- not long-term COVID, but long-term COVID uh, side effects, collateral effects going on for much later. For example, uh, if those young teens don't get their human papillomavirus vaccine, then we can almost calculate with reasonably good accuracy exactly what proportion of those will go on to develop uh, various forms of uh, cancers later on in life because the link there has been uh, quite well established. And if I'm not mistaken, the HPV vaccine, that's a two-dose regimen, is it not? Yep, yep. Yeah, because, you know, there's there's been misinformation about all of the COVID vaccines that we seem to be needing. Mm. It's, it's, it's just mind-boggling at times. But I guess, you know, nobody really really loves getting a needle, but and especially younger children. But it's very important. I mean, the consequences of not getting those vaccinations are, are pretty damaging. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's very true. And I think I'm just thinking, thinking about what you just remarked on, that, that we don't like vaccinations. I think pe- once people become used to them, they, they just shrug it off and say, oh, that's just another one of those vaccines. But it's that initial problem 
of needle phobia. I don't know exactly what you'd call it. And so it would be great if we could find a way around that in some way. They've, there's some wonderful work been done, I think, in, uh, in, in Oxford. Uh, it was, I believe it was Oxford, where they were distracting kids with um, virtual headsets. And uh, they were vaccinated at the same time, and, and they sort of enjoyed the experience. So it wasn't a, a hidden thing. They knew there was something touching on the arm. But the pain appeared not to really go along with it, almost as if the pain uh, was really imagined ahead of time by people talking about it on the radio and television and saying, oh my goodness, this is a painful shot. But it's not, of course. And if you distract kids, they say, oh, I didn't even feel that. Well, and if you get somebody who's very good at giving an injection, you don't feel it at all. Oh, that's right. And I, I'm old enough to remember when needles were not these very fine one-use needles. They were old blunt needles that were boiled up every night in the, in the autoclave and used again and again. And those, <laughs> they really had the trouble getting those in sometimes. Were those the metal and glass ones? Oh yeah, those those that's right. They're they're antique pieces now. You see them in museums, but uh, those needles have to be sort of cleaned and boiled every night and uh, reused. We didn't have disposables back then. Yeah, and I don't think that it's um it's anything uh, malicious. It's just that we've been so focused on COVID. Uh, kids have been out of school for so long. Getting kids back into school has been quite a gear up. I think it's just one of those things that went on the back burner. Oh, I, I like a lot of things went on the back burner. I mean, it, it should, things that should not have gone on the back burner. Even um, normal people who would normally go along and say, what's this, uh, Doc? I've got something on my leg here or on my breast or on my throat. or something. And they delay that because they don't want to have to line up or long waits or go into a waiting room with lots of other people. And this has been the story. So therefore, these, these various things, some of them are dangerous, uh, get delayed in their diagnosis and therefore treatment becomes delayed. This is what I mean by the, the sort of the collateral effects that could go on for months or years after the, uh, the pandemic's gone. Well, it's one of the things that I've been wondering about because there was such a, a vaccine pushback with regards to COVID. Um, and to a lesser degree, there had been um, some concerns, shall we say, about uh, the regular vaccines for children for them uh, to get into school. A lot of that data was very discredited. It was, uh, I think, one report that was just slaughtered um, uh, by those who are really in the know. It was completely discredited. But I'm just wondering, because there was so much pushback to the COVID vaccine, if there's going to be more of a problem with some parents convincing them that they need to get the basic vaccines for their kids. You're absolutely right, Sean. That goes back to Andrew Wakefield and his uh, fraudulent uh, paper that was produced several years before the pandemic came along. And the, the vaccination rates for things like the MMR had begun to go down globally around the world. And therefore, we began to see actual cases begin to arise. Remember that <clears throat> that measles, ordinary red measles, has it was until pandemic. This pandemic came along was the most uh, transmissible uh, viral disease. Uh, and the moment we slipped below about 96 or 97 percent of the population being properly immunized against measles, the moment we slipped down, and we did slip down as a result of Wakefield's uh, fraudulent practices, we began to see cases going up again. 
And measles has a has a, a lot of uh, complications attached to it. So some things, some of them permanent, some of them even death is associated with deafness, for example. And so the damage done by Wakefield long before the pandemic was already beginning to take its toll. And then, of course, this comes along and the, the anti-vax uh, movements and um, the flat earth people you know, associated with them, uh, all, this, all this conspiracy, uh, we, we're expecting to see these numbers uh, have slipped quite a lot more. We, we need some catching up to do. We need some uh, good, good communications and good confidence building now. Our guest is Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor emeritus at the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, I'm really glad earlier that you mentioned that there was also a bit of a lag with adults for their shingles and pneumonia shots. Yeah, because really we were only just beginning to move into that area and to remind people that, uh, especially if you're if you're sort of middle aged or older, this is uh, these are diseases that are very easy to solve and cure, and they they are painful if you and sometimes more serious than that if you get them. So that sort of began to slide back for the reasons you were saying. You know, our attention was on COVID and protect. Pre- prevention against that so you got some catching up to do there as well but surely yes um, if if you know anybody uh, who's had shingles uh, as an adult of course this is a, a, a sequelae from an earlier chickenpox infection as a, as a child just ask them how painful it is and I think that might convince you to go and get your your shingles shot. Uh, it's not. I think there's a few dollars you have to pay out for it. It's not, I believe, covered. At least last time I checked, it wasn't covered by the the plans. But uh, it's well worth it, and for the, the the pneumococcal vaccine as well. Yes, and if you're over 65 in Ontario, the pneumococcal shot is free. Oh, pneumococcal shot's free. Uh, that's right. But the shingles one isn't. I think yes. if if last time I looked, that's right. You're correct. Yeah. Um, I mentioned in the opening that there has been a pushback at times for regular school required vaccinations. Uh, and as we mentioned, that was on, based on very discredited information. Uh, I'm wondering with the shots for adults, shingles and pneumonia in particular, because the fourth dose of the COVID vaccine is being rolled out now. I, my shot is booked for May 18th, by the way. There's also a new round of COVID vaccinations that are being talked about that will be more effective against the Omicron version of, uh, of COVID or variant of COVID. When you're talking about catching up on these other shots, do you have to kind of schedule it out so that you don't, you know, have too many shots all at once? Uh, there should not be a problem with that. Uh, would tend to think that if somebody is actually suffering from some viral and like respiratory disease at the same time, that you wait until that thing resolves before you then get your uh, vaccine for, say, the COVID. But but there shouldn't be a problem with it because they are completely completely different viruses and completely different illnesses and the vaccines work in in you know attack different ways altogether so i shouldn't uh, that's something we need to uh, i will check on that and get back to you for more information if i learn something from our experts but of my my understanding is, that, is there's no reason to delay that at all but certainly from terms of the virus uh, in terms of the vaccines keeping up with the virus uh, uh, subvariants yes the producers are well on that and they have been in the beginning the good thing is that the, the mRNA vaccines are not that difficult to tweak 
to keep up with the new variant. We don't have to start from the beginning again. And uh, the idea of having a, a, a COVID vaccine that is closer to being a universal vaccine, that it is not just against one type of protein on one variant of the particular virus, but will will protect you against the whole thing. That's a, that's a, that's that's a wonderful goal, and people are working on that at the moment. I understand the latest editions of uh, Pfizer uh, are being tried now with the um, with the uh, vaccine uh, linked to the Omicron uh, subvariant. Subvariant. So that's uh, that's going to be in the future. So as we get, as we move into the yearly booster shot, which is which probably will be what we're looking at, something in the fall where we line up to get our influenza shot, and in there will be a booster for the COVID as well. That'll probably be the situation. That uh, that one could just like influenza would probably be expected to be aligned with the latest subvariant. Are, are you saying that they're considering a one-and-done kind of shot for both flu and COVID? Oh, that would be ideal. We're a little way away from having a universal COVID. But in the interim, until that happens, and, uh, that, that will give us a kind of immunity that we've come to expect with polio, for example. You know, one shot and you're, you're essentially done for life. That would be wonderful. But until we get to that point, uh, the yearly boosters we can expect from now on will probably be more aligned to what the latest subvariant was in the year before, much like influenza uh, has been up to, up to now. Are they considering a combo flu and COVID? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's certainly in the cards. It's certainly, if the if the indications are that the, a yearly booster shot seems appropriate, and seeing as winter months seem just like with influenza, that uh, COVID seems to prefer winter months for transmission, then that might just fit right in there. You, you've already got three antigens, in some cases four antigens, against the influenza viruses every year when we get that shot. So this will just be adding uh, one more uh, uh, antigen, in this case, the COVID, the um, COVID uh, virus antigen into that one as well. So it'll be easily, easily done. One shot and you're, you're finished for that same year. And I have to admit, when I was uh, considering booking my fourth shot, and as I mentioned, it is booked for May 18th, um, and I had heard about this new generation of uh, COVID vaccine, I was wondering if, well, maybe I, I don't need the fourth, maybe I should just wait for this new one. Well, I think that quite honestly, where are we now? May? Uh, I get my shot in about an hour and a half, by the way. I'm a little bit ahead of you. But if we think about it now, um, by the time the fall rolls around, say October, November, the situation might have changed. We may be seriously into endemic phase at that point, And we might have seen the regular annual boosters be in place, in which case you can probably expect to have... Um, uh, if not the universal vaccine, I think that will take a while to have a universal one because it it has to it has to be a, linked with the the probably the the proteins on the on the actual envelope of the virus, not the spikes on the outside, and that'll take a while to develop. But in the meantime, uh, a, a, a viral antigen that's uh, that's the, the vaccine made on the viral antigen that's uh, attuned to the most recent uh, subvariant would be the thing we can probably expect from now on. So I, I guess part of what I'm asking is um, if you are eligible or soon to be eligible for uh, a fourth dose of the vaccine, should you get it now? Or Oh, yeah. 
Oh yes, absolutely, yep, yep. Don't hesitate on that one at all. The benefits of hanging on and waiting for something that's a little finely tuned. No, no, get it now. There's so much going around. And we are just looking at the figures recently from the, the federal modeling team. And there's no question about it. Uh, if you're offered the vaccine, you're eligible, take it and then sort out the, the fine tuning bits later on for the next version. Um, yeah, because I'm, I guess we still don't know. I mean, we're supposed to be in a sixth wave right now. Don't know how long that's going to last. I, I, I haven't heard the uh, any recent modeling information. Well, we're, we're certainly coming down from the sixth wave, but unfortunately we've, we're seeing the early indicators, the leading indicators are the, are, the, are the wastewater indicators. They go up. I mean, technically, in theory, you're shedding virus by excreting it a day or two before symptoms arrive, whereas... Looking at hospitalization rates, that can be two or three weeks after symptoms arrive. And then the ICU and death and so on is maybe three or four weeks later. So we're looking at those leading indicators, those first early warning systems. And those uh, wastewater figures are are still going up in many areas of Ontario uh, quite dramatically. So there's a lot of it around. Estimates are between one in four people have recently been infected with this thing. Uh, so the idea now is not to keep testing and to shut it out from our lives completely, but is mainly to protect those people who are particularly vulnerable. If it's yourself, that's fine. If it's other people in the family or relatives or friends or something who have been had cancer therapy or transplant therapy or have an, an immune deficiency disease or their advanced age or something like that, we need to protect those. And that's the that's the whole model of the ongoing herd immunity idea that the vast majority is protecting protecting the small few who who cannot be. Well, I really appreciate your advice and for spending some time with us this morning. It's always my pleasure, Shona, anytime. Stay safe. Dr. Timothy Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus at the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Percy is the name of the virtual cashier that is being tested out at some grocery stores in Ontario. The grocery store chain that's testing it out is Freshie. There are three locations of Freshie in Hamilton, two in London, but I don't know if those are the locations where this is being beta tested as yet. Basically, it's a terminal. It's a cashier who actually works from Nicaragua. It's a video terminal that you will see. Uh, Joining us now to explain this to me, because I really don't get it, is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID. Uh, Bruce Winder is joining us now. Hi, Bruce. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate you coming on because I don't understand what this is about. Uh, I was pretty surprised when I first saw some reports about uh, Percy showing up at a grocery store near you. Yeah, this is one of those really kind of weird, sad situations where probably, you know, someone looked at this and thought, hey, great idea for cost savings. Um, but really didn't think it through in terms of how it would translate from a consumer-facing standpoint. Um, And and this is probably just one of those situations where sometimes automation works and sometimes it doesn't. Do we know how it's going to work at this point? Well, my understanding is it's it's just a test. The company's just testing a few locations. You know, when you walk up and you give your order to someone named Percy or the name of the device is Percy and it patches through to someone in Nicaragua. But, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me on a couple of levels. One is, you know, outsourcing uh, back office services is one thing, you know, where maybe you outsource some payroll 
or outsource a call center, some coding. I get that. But uh, outsourcing something so obvious so that when the consumer walks up to your stores and sees this um, just doesn't make sense. Again, it might have sounded nifty on paper, but doesn't make sense. When you're in the service business like Freshy, you can't afford to, uh, you know, take your front, uh, you know, customer facing process and outsource that. It just doesn't make sense. You have to have a live body there. Well, in trying to wrap my brain around this, I was thinking it's it's kind of like uh, a cashier experience, except you don't actually have a physical person there. It's kind of like self-checkout. It's kind of like ordering your groceries online, but it's sort right. of a, a mishmash of all three. Yeah, and it's a bit of a slap in the face. Like, for some reason, we can accept those things you mentioned, but when you show someone and people find out they're from Nicaragua, there's nothing wrong with Nicaragua people, but it's just sort of a obvious sort of cash grab in terms of outsourcing someone. Like someone's going to say, okay, why can't a Canadian do that job? And, uh, you know, the company may argue, well, Canadians don't want to do that job. Well, I think some Canadians do want to do that job. But, you know, it's sort of just a cash grab in terms of paying them three seventy-five an hour, you know, versus $15 an hour. And it's sort of like slapping the consumer in the face and say, hey, look what we're doing. We're, bo- we're boosting our bottom line. And, you know, you, we're, we're giving up a job that could go to a Canadian. So, you know, it, it's just a bit of a slap in the face. And a lot of these companies try to stand for ESG or environment, social society and, and um and other things, you know, but but this sort of goes against that brand governance or ESG environments, uh, uh, society and government. This kind of goes against that. It kind of flies in the face of the brand. Well, you know, there was consumer pushback for self-checkout. That continues to go on. Uh, I know I've seen posts saying, you know, hey, Walmart, uh, you haven't trained me to be a cashier. So why? Yeah. So, you know, that's part of it, too. Yeah. um, So so I'm just wondering... Uh, I guess it's too early for us to get a real idea of how people are reacting to this other than, you know, whether or not they're even being used, if they're opting to check out a different way. Yeah, I haven't seen any data in terms of the utilization of it. But yeah, I think you're going to see a bit more of a a blowback on this than you would with self-checkout. Because again, it's sort of flaunting, you know, that that you're outsourcing. It's like It's like sort of airing things that companies normally don't air. And with self-checkout, you're right. You can see it. There's no one there using a self-checkout. But this sort of flaunts it in the face of consumers, and it's grabbed the media's attention, too. So it's hit a bit of a sore spot. Well, I have been wondering what they're going to do about uh, about loss and theft, uh, because if it's somebody on a video screen from Nicaragua, I mean, they can tell you to come back, but I don't think it's going to be particularly effective. Yeah, no, I'm assuming that I haven't been in the store yet, but I'm assuming they have some other staff who can help out in the kitchen. But, um, you know, it just it sort of just weakens that whole customer customer service aspect. People when you're in the service business like these folks are, you want to talk to a human. You know, that's a major sort of critical point. A moment of truth for them is speaking to a human at the front. And uh, by outsourcing that, I just think it's doing a really disservice to not only their own brand, but also to the labor force as well in Canada. Yeah, I know something that is often annoying for people who have to deal with a call center that's in another part of the world, and and that's miscommunication. Yeah, and some people have brought their call centers back from other parts of the world just because they want to own that relationship. 
and they want to control it more and they realize that the savings they got wasn't worth it when you weigh that against sort of customer goodwill and and uh, service and things of that nature yeah and you know you were just mentioning about uh, people not really liking liking the video chat experiences there was just a recent study that said basically if if you want to brainstorm with people in your work group video chatting is not the best way to do it and that's people you already know Exactly. I mean, we're all, we're human. We're social creatures. We're pack animals, whether we want to admit it or not. And there's something different about being together in person. You kind of feed off each other and come up with new ideas. When you're behind technology, sometimes you feel isolated, you know, and you don't feel that same human connection that we long for. Well, I've done some grocery shopping online uh, during the course of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, you in that experience, you drive up, the groceries go in, you go home, and then you find out about the things that you either didn't order that you got. Yeah. Or, you know, I remember one time I ordered a, what I thought was a bunch of bananas, and I got one. Yeah, that that's very common. There's been a lot of discussion about that recently in the media is how a lot of the Canadian grocery folks... Um, haven't really got their A game on yet. You know, the best example I heard of is where someone ordered a light bulb and they sent them candles. <laughs> and I thought that was absolutely incredible. So there's a lot of uh, work to be done and gaps to be closed in terms of order accuracy, the way they deal with substitutions, you know, overbilling, underbilling, all kinds of different things that the grocers are trying to kind of get out of the system right now to to you know, to create a better experience for customers. Our guest is uh, Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of the book, Retail Before, During and After COVID. What are some of the changes that we can expect to see in retail after COVID? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot happening. I mean, obviously the whole e-commerce thing has slowed down, but it's still sticky in terms of, you know, we're not going to go backwards. We all got used to e-commerce, the convenience the assortment of e-commerce, that's not going away. You're seeing consolidation among bigger brands. You're seeing companies use more private label, especially during the inflationary period we're, we're suffering through now. There's a greater push and purchase toward private label and control brands. Um, you're also seeing, you know, right now, you're probably going to see people uh, do more experiential retailing because you can go back to stores and things like that. So, um, and customers are changing too. There's more thrifty customers out there. We're seeing the continued polarization of retail where, you know, things are doing really well at the luxury side, but, you know, pretty tight at the value side. So you're seeing middle retail continue to hollow out. Well, it's it's interesting what you're saying there, because um, I, I know that there was kind of a pushback against um, shall we call it disposable fashion retailers, things exactly. like H&M, um, that yeah. people, you know, they didn't want that, that it's not a, a responsible or sustainable um, green way to uh, buy your clothing. Um, are, are we going to see changes in, in that regard as well? Yeah, it's a great point. And it's kind of an interesting topic because you're right. There's been a lot of discussion about fast fashion, you know, the Zara's, the H&M and folks like that. And everyone overall is still very much pushing green in terms of how you purchase products. The irony, though, is a lot of youngsters are buying from a company called Sheen in China, which is, you know, literally even cheaper than H&M and probably has questionable processes in their factories as it relates to labor and environment. There's been some discussion about that. So, you know, we talk about green on one side, but then some of our purchase habits don't support green on the other. Uh, you know, it's interesting about the changes uh, in in buying anything because of COVID. Um, I know a lot of people 
really want to go back to a mom and pop org, um, operation because it was all based on service and uh, mm-hmm. building a relationship between the owner and your customer. And, and that went by the wayside. I mean, you know, for understandable reasons during COVID, but are we going to be able to go back to that? Well, you know what, we're going to want to go back to that because we want to support the little company, the local company. And we know that buying local sometimes helps the environment as well. But we're also being pushed in our pocketbooks, right, with inflation being up, you know, six or seven percent gas prices and they're up 40 percent. We have to make some tough choices and we can't always do what we want to do. We have to do what allows us to make ends meet. So the consumer is being torn that way. Obviously, if you're an affluent customer and you owned assets during the pandemic, like equity, stocks, and real estate, you've done quite well. But if you haven't owned those things, you're not seeing your wages go up as fast as inflation, and you're having to make some trade-offs. You might buy, one thing that's good for the environment, you're seeing people buy more used clothes and used products from Kijiji and you know marketplaces like Facebook and things. So you're going to see more used products to, uh, in the mix, but people are making some tough choices right now. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I just saw a report, I think it was in Vogue magazine, about an online retailer where they're going to get, say, you know, old university jackets, like a bomber jacket from a sports mm-hmm. team, uh, refurbishing them, freshening them up, putting on new patches and uh, and other decorations and appliques on it, and they're being sold online for $800. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's certain niches like that, you know, that may tap into nostalgia and things like that. But definitely the used product market is uh, surging and it's not as cheap as you think. You know, companies are making some pretty good profit on some of these uh, used products, particularly if they're experienced luxury products like some of the Gucci bags and things like that. It's still not as cheap as you think, but it's cheaper than getting, you know, the thing uh, that hasn't been used yet, the product that hasn't been used yet. And I think maybe going forward, we're going to deal with um, our shopping strategies depending on what it is that we're buying. I mean, there are some things, like I have kind of weird feet. I've got flat feet. I've got bunions. I need mm-hmm. to try those shoes on before I buy them. Exactly. It's all it's all category specific, right? Like we behave differently as consumers depending on which category we're buying and what needs we have. You know, for basic items, you might say, well, Dollarama is a good trick, Right. But for something like footwear, like you said, you have special needs for your footwear. Well, you need to go in and try that on. So it's going to really vary by consumer segment and even within consumer segment based on the item. People sort of channel pick depending on how important the item is to them or any special needs they have for a particular item or service. In your book, uh, Retail Before, During and After COVID, do you take a look at the mall experience? Because that really seems to have changed. I do. I have quite a bit on the mall experience, and uh, I use some examples from a trip to New York I made when I was writing it, and also, you know, just around Canada. But yeah, malls are really different now. You're seeing the A malls, you know, the Yorkdales and sort of those kind of Eaton Center malls doing really well. They're investing millions. They're building new new brands are coming in internationally. You're seeing sort of the tier two malls become more workhorses, pickup locations, grocery service, doctor's office, fitness centers. And then the tier three malls are the ones that are really getting hit that a lot of them just don't make sense They're So they're knocking them down and building condominiums or townhomes with a side order of retail in the bottom. Well, yeah, I, I saw a couple of examples of that uh, the last time, and this was pre-COVID, the last time I was down in the United States, where you do have uh, sort of an outdoor mall experience on the main floor, then you've got office space, then you've got uh, condominiums in the floors exactly. that go up. So it's almost like your own little city. 
It is, and it's called like mixed use. That's what they call it in the industry, but it's becoming more popular. I mean, if you look at what's happening with Fairview Mall in Toronto, Yorkdale, all the big malls, even Sherway, allegedly, you know, and I'm sure there's going to be some uh, in different other parts of uh, Canada as well. But, you know, you're seeing all these sort of merging of these lifestyles because a lot of youngsters, not all, but a lot of youngsters or people who are just sort of settled down, they want to work, play and uh, and uh, have fun, live at the, in the same location. Well, I know one of the things that they were trying in Hamilton up at Lime Ridge Mall uh, was to get a new arena up there uh, for the Hamilton Bulldogs. It, it sure. didn't work out that way. But are we going to be seeing more of a trend for that kind of large venue that will draw people in? And there's a mall. Yeah, no, it's a great point because that's what mall owners have had to do is have to think out of the box. You know, there's been a, a, a skating rink in the mall in uh, West Edmonton Mall for a while now. But, you know, other malls are starting to look at those things. They're looking at sort of how do you incorporate services and products and experiences to bring people there? Because with the growth of e-commerce, you just don't need as many trips to the mall, right? You have to have a real reason for going there. So that's why you're seeing these kind of unique experiential developments as well. I have to admit, I was kind of surprised in the last several years, probably five, ten years or so, um, of in Canada at least, there being an expansion of the open air uh, retail experience, open air malls. I'm thinking yeah. in particular of the uh, the outlet mall down in Niagara yeah. on the Lake, because you would think that in winter we're not going to be too happy about that, and the enclosed mall was uh, was created because they wanted to make sure that they had that winter trade. Yeah, it's a great point. You're seeing, uh, especially for outlet businesses, you're seeing a lot of those open air malls. Um, the good news about open air malls, if you're a landlord or a tenant, is you don't pay for all that heating and air condition, and it's cheaper, right? And there's been a bit of a halo effect for some of those open air malls with COVID and with some of the pandemics going around, because people are a little nervous. It's kind of going away now, but people were a little nervous about being in a mall with everyone, right? So you can kind of get more uh, individual, you know, sort of service within those open air malls where you have each each store separated. And uh, yeah, you know what? Things come and go. Malls will, will exist. They're not going away. Some people think they're changing. Some malls are changing more to be like a marketplace like you'd see in the movies from like 1800s where everyone kind of goes there and eats, gets entertained, buys products, you know, get things done. And, and uh, it's sort of a multifaceted trip. Yeah. Multi-purpose trip. Just to circle back for a second for the original reason why sure. I got in touch with you about this Percy virtual cashier. I guess yeah. we'll we'll find out if they're thinking this is a good idea because we'll see more of them or it's just going to disappear. Yeah, my own opinion is it's probably going to disappear with all the backlash. I think they tried it. You know, hats off to them for trying it. But again, I think it's one of those things that looks real good on paper from a cost-saving standpoint. And it looks real hip, like they're trying new technologies. But when you think about the customer blueprint, the service blueprint, and the experience, I give it a big F. And you know, they're probably going to—they're uh, probably going to follow that. They might, you know, who knows what they'll do. But I would be surprised if they rolled this thing out. Well, I, you know, and as you mentioned, there are so many boxes that are being ticked in the negative here. You know, yeah. you don't have an in-person experience. You know, you're standing there. The person on the other end of that video chat is making three seventy-five an hour. Exactly, exactly. It's not their fault, but you know, it just shows sort of—I don't want to say greed, but you know, it's kind of capitalism at its worst. You know, the ugly head of capitalism. And I'm a capitalist, trust me. But it's sort of the dark side of capitalism popping up, and, and people don't want to see that. Well, as a retail analyst, I, I can see that you would be. And as you mentioned, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. If people want some more information, uh, how can they get a hold of your book? 
Well, it's on Amazon. So uh, if you go onto Amazon, I offer it in hardcover, uh, paperback, and even e version. So uh, yeah, I hope I hope people like it. Well, Bruce, I want to come to your house and get one. I mean, that that in-person experience is yeah, what no we're problem. Drop by, I'll give you a signed copy. <laughs> awesome, that's great. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and the author of the book "Retail Before, During, and After COVID." Thank you for your insights. I appreciate you taking time. Thanks, really appreciate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Busy, busy day in Ontario. We've got the budget lockup going on right now. The budget's going to be announced later on, and then apparently they're going away. But it's a very busy day, in fact, for Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. Uh, Not only with the budget, we are on the cusp of uh, the election campaign, officially, and uh, he's got a lot of announcements. One is coming up in just a couple of hours. Uh, And so he's taking some time from his schedule to join us right now. Mike, thanks so much. A pleasure to speak to you this morning. Oh, hey, Shona, it's a pleasure to be on. And yes, it's a busy day with the budget coming out for sure. Well, and as we've uh, been hearing in the news, uh, our reporting with Global News is that, uh, yes, we've got a budget lockup. There will be a document that will be uh, announced in the legislature and tabled, and then they're off. They're gone. I just wanted to get your opinion about uh, what you think about that. Well, obviously, I can't uh, comment on the contents of the budget yet, but just the political process around the budget, I think it's just wrong what the Ford government is doing. I've always said that we need to put people before politics and to use the budget document in such a partisan political way is just wrong. I can tell you there's a number of social service agencies and nonprofits who don't even know what their fiscal year budget is going to look like because we don't have a budget in Ontario yet, even though we're almost a full month into the new fiscal year. So to put them in that level of uncertainty just doesn't serve our communities. Well, and uh, it also puts uh, whoever should win uh, after June the 2nd, if it's the Tories, they've got this document ready. And, you know, hopefully it could be passed quickly. We don't know. Uh, but as you say, I mean, that leaves a big question mark for any other party that might be coming in. Well, you know, it definitely leaves a big question mark for any political party uh, in terms of, you know, how they would make adjustments to that budget. But I think more importantly is the negative consequences it's having for people in communities, especially the social service agencies and nonprofits who, you know, here we are a year into the fiscal year, they don't know what their budgets are going to be. The fact that the Ford government, you know, likely is going to move us right into an election means the budget won't pass until after the election. So we're going to be, you know, multiple months into the next fiscal year with organizations not even knowing what their budget's going to be. So imagine, you know, how difficult it is to make staffing decisions, hiring decisions, service delivery decisions. That all has a negative impact on people and communities. Um, One of the issues that has been talked about, uh, certainly on the municipal level, also on the provincial level, has been housing affordability. Um, You just need to look at some of the real estate listings in really any community to see how high prices are. Uh, Some of the listings might actually surprise people. Uh, This week, your party released a housing affordability plan. One of the items was a proposal for a 20% tax on domestic home buyers with multiple properties. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this is really a plan to create a level playing field for first-time homebuyers. I mean, we have a whole generation of young people in Ontario 
wondering if they'll ever be able to afford to own a home. And many of them are being um, squeezed out of the market by, you know, large corporations and wealthy speculators who are buying up single family homes. As a matter of fact, over 30% now of residential properties are owned by multiple homeowners, uh, a 50% increase in that uh, over the last decade. It's just not sustainable. And so what we're saying is let's take the non-resident speculation tax of 20% and let's apply it to resident speculators on their third property and any additional property uh, they purchase so we can create a level playing field for first-time home buyers. So if you have a home and then you buy a cottage, this isn't going to affect you, but it will if you go for three or more properties. That is right. You know, so it definitely is an understanding that, you know, a lot of Ontarians own a home, own a cottage, uh, or maybe they own a home and own another rental property, or sometimes people may have to live and work in two different communities. Uh, and so it's recognizing that, but it's like if you start buying a third home and a fourth home and a fifth home, and some of these big corporations now are buying like 100 single family homes, you're going to be taxed on that as a way to, you know, cool off the market uh, and, you know, provide a level playing field for first time home buyers. I mean, this is one important piece and it's a bold policy uh, to address a real housing crisis we're in, but it's only one piece. I mean, we're also talking about, you know, supporting the city of Hamilton, for example, that's requested a vacant homes tax for speculators who just leave homes vacant, which we support We've been pushing that as well. And in addition, we're pushing hard uh, to increase housing supply, especially purpose-built rental housing supply. Uh, so everyone in Ontario can have an affordable place to call home in the community they want to live in. What about those who are unhoused? What's the Green Party's plan for that? Yeah, so we uh, just released uh, two days ago uh, a, a bold plan for that to build 60,000 permanent supportive housing spaces with wraparound mental health addiction and other supports to really address um, people who are unhoused or in unstable housing situations. And not only will that improve those individual lives and improve the quality of life in our communities, it'll actually save government money. Uh, numerous studies show that every $10 that you invest in permanent supportive housing um, saves government $21 and other services primarily health care, emergency services, and criminal justice services. So we think that's a really important investment to improve quality of life, stabilize people's housing situations, and improve um, life in our communities. Uh, you have an announcement coming up. Uh, actually, the rally is getting underway in about 20 minutes. So again, thank you for taking time to speak with us. Uh, but uh, you're going to be uh, at the rally for OSD, OSDSP getting lost in the vegetable soup there a little bit. Um, (laughs) But uh, what can you tell us uh, about uh, this announcement and what you're doing at Queen's Park today? Yes, I've been calling for a doubling of social assistance rates. So people who are on Ontario disability support payments, they receive $1,100 a month to live on. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, You know, you can't even find an apartment to rent uh, for $1,100 a month, let alone cover all your other costs, food, um, you know, medical needs, uh, your utilities, et cetera. I mean, we're, we are forcing people with disabilities to live in legislative poverty. It, it's wrong. Uh, you know, people on ODSP haven't really had an increase um, during Doug Ford's time in government. There, there was a planned 3% increase in the Ford government 
cut in half to a 1.5% increase. But when you look at 5% inflation and the fact that we're at, we're telling people you have to live on $1,100 a month, it's wrong. Doubling ODSP rates would at least bring people with disabilities up to the low income cutoff level. Uh, so they're not living in legislative poverty. We're speaking with Mike Schreiner, who is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. Um, We are on the cusp of an official election call. I mean, it's been underway for a while. (laughs) Uh, None the least of which may be uh, evidenced by the uh, provincial budget that's being announced this afternoon. And then immediately um, they're going to be uh, tabling it. and, uh, And then, I guess... We're off. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to uh, get your reaction to, Mike, or get some information about uh, earlier this morning, we were speaking with Dr. Ahmed Arya, palliative care uh, physician, about long-term care. Uh, what can you tell us about the Green Party's plan uh, for long-term care? Yes, yeah, well, first of all, we just need to completely reimagine the way we care for elders. I mean, like I think most Ontarians, you know, it just breaks my heart to see uh, how many elders um, unfortunately passed away uh, due to COVID uh, in, in over the last two years and just the number of outbreaks in our long-term care homes. And my heart goes out to all the families who lost loved ones. And I think we owe it to those families. We owe it to elders to um, make sure we make the investments we need in home and community care so elders can age in place at home and bring in innovative solutions such as co-housing so they can age at home without being isolated. But we still know that there will be people who have complex care needs that will need to be in long-term care homes. And I think the key there is to say the word homes. We want elders to be in long-term care homes, not institutions. And so that means that one, we need to prioritize people over profits and care over profits. And so we will be phasing out for profit long-term care. Uh, And also we need a mandate to provide a minimum of four hours of care each and every day for every resident in in long-term care homes and to make sure we hire enough staff to deliver on that commitment now, not four years down the road like the current government is proposing. And we need to make sure that all of those frontline uh, healthcare workers in long-term care are paid living wages, are guaranteed full-time work uh, with full-time benefits, because we know the quality of care is determined by how well we care for the people who care for our loved ones. Um, one of the key issues for people, um, based on some of the polling that Global News has commissioned from Ipsos, uh, is affordability in general. Just, you know, the impact that inflation has been having on the average person's pocketbook on their household finances. Uh, what is uh, the plan for, from the Green Party for dealing with the inflation rate and just how expensive things are on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I hear you on that one, Shona. And I would say housing affordability is the number one issue people are talking about. But, you know, the three key inflation areas that are really hitting families the hardest are food, fuel and housing. And so when it comes to housing, the Ontario Greens have put forward what many have described as a masterclass plan in addressing the housing affordability crisis. We'll drive speculation out of the market. Uh, we'll increase housing supply and we'll make sure we do it in a way where people don't have to have these long, expensive, soul crushing commutes. 
Uh, when it comes to transportation, we're calling for an immediate cut uh, in, in public transit fares so we can make it affordable for people to get on reliable transit and we can help relieve some of the pressure on municipal budgets by the province stepping in and, and providing that funding. And we also have to electrify transportation. You know, it costs, you know, the average electric vehicle owner five bucks to you know to charge their vehicle overnight and fill it up with electricity meanwhile you know it costs you know a hundred bucks plus to fill up at the gas station um, we just have to get big oil out of our lives so people can save money by not having to go to the pumps and then finally when it comes to food, pr food prices you know we've been proposing a grocery uh, code of conduct uh, to create a level playing field for small farmers and producers, but also to put in um, um, regulations against price gouging and price collusion, which we've seen, you know, obviously people are aware of the, you know, the whole uh, bread pricing scandal in Ontario as a way to start combating, you know, the increase in global uh, food prices. But we also have to start protecting our farmland. I mean, the Ford government wants to pave over our farmland with these super sprawl highways and the urban sprawl that that will unleash. I tell you what, if anything that COVID and now this horrific uh, Putin invasion of Ukraine has shown us is we need to be able to produce enough food right here in Ontario so we're not subject so much to these global supply chain shocks when it comes to putting food on our grocery store shelves. Now, when you're talking about uh, issues with uh, commuting and gas prices, I am a commuter, so you're certainly uh, speaking to issues that are of concern to me. Um, what about uh, electric vehicles? I know you were mentioning that uh, it costs, what, about five bucks on average uh, for somebody to recharge their electric vehicle overnight in Ontario, as opposed to whatever the gas price is going to be. I mean, it's going up, What it went up four cents a liter overnight. It's going up another four cents a liter uh, tomorrow, I think. Um, and, you know, the price of diesel, as I was driving in this morning, I saw $2.20 a liter. Yeah, the, the, these fuel prices are just, you know, they're out of control and hitting people hard in the pocketbook. And we've seen this before. I mean, you know, every time there's any sort of global supply shock where there's OPEC nations taking action, or you again have this this just senseless invasion of Ukraine by Putin, um, it sends prices through the roof. And you know, so our plan is let's just get big oil out of our gas pumps and help make electric vehicles affordable for the average consumer. Uh, because we know the cost of filling it up with electricity is a fraction of filling up your car with gas. And the maintenance costs are a fraction because you don't have to do oil changes and things like that. And so I'll give you an example. The electric car I drive, it, it has a sticker price right now of $38,000. So that's, you know, that's up there. Um, but it's not strata, you know, in the stratosphere. But if you take the Ontario Greens $10,000 rebate on the purchase of a new electric vehicle, and then you add the $5,000 rebate that's available through the federal government, suddenly that's a $23,000 new car purchase. That's pretty affordable for most people who can afford a vehicle, especially when you look at their cost savings on operation. And then we're also um, offering a thousand dollar rebate for the purchase of an electric bike. And in North America, the actual the electric bike market is growing as faster, faster than the electric vehicle market because it's a fast, convenient, very low cost way of getting around, particularly people who live in urban areas. And also a thousand dollar rebate for the purchase of a used electric vehicle because we know that for a number of consumers, um, the used vehicle market is important for them. 
we want to make electric vehicles affordable for the average person so they can save money at the pumps. Well, affordability is one key issue because, frankly, that's one of the things that's prevented me from getting an electric vehicle. But the other thing is, do we have the infrastructure if if we do make this transition to electric vehicles with batteries, do we have the infrastructure to be able to sustain that demand? Yeah, it's a great question, Shona. And, you know, right now, uh, the infrastructure for electric vehicles is is growing. I've been touring the province, north, south, east, west, uh, completely in an electric vehicle. And, and so it's certainly possible, certainly doable, uh, given the number of high-speed chargers that are available uh, in the province. But as we have more people, um, you know, purchasing electric vehicles and driving electric vehicles, we will absolutely need more charging infrastructure. The Ontario Greens have a plan to roll that out uh, across the province. Um, and right now we have uh, excess capacity in our electricity system to probably take on about a million uh, new electric vehicles. But we will certainly need to increase um, electricity supply capacity as we hope more and more people, um, you know, uh, you know, start moving to electrifying their transportation. Uh, and the good news is, is the cost of renewable energy has dropped so dramatically. The cost of solar, 97% decrease over the last 10 years, for example, that we can build out uh, renewable um, generating capacity at a very low, low cost. Uh, to help with that uptake in demand. And right now that would mean that the $24 billion or so that we're sending out of our province to buy fossil fuels from other jurisdictions could stay in our province, creating jobs and prosperity in Ontario, buying made in Ontario clean electricity at a far lower price. Well, when you're talking about buying made in Ontario clean energy, um, what is the Green Party's stand with regards to the mining of, uh, of battery metals? Because I know there, there had been a push to yes. try to access the ring of fire where some of these metals can be found, um, but that's a really expensive proposition. Yeah, so we we support a made in Ontario uh, mining to manufacturing electric battery uh, and electric vehicle supply chain. Uh, we absolutely recognize that it has to be done, particularly uh, on traditional uh, Indigenous lands, in in a way that has free informed prior consent of Indigenous peoples and. We're proposing that uh, Indigenous communities be full equity partnership uh, in those in those mining opportunities. I've met with a number of mining companies that have talked about the technology that now exists to do sustainable mining practices to really minimize environmental impact and the capital costs of many of the metal mining that you see that's needed for electric batteries. Uh, don't have as high a capital cost. And so it really creates some opportunities for joint partnerships between mining companies and indigenous communities. So we can make it part of economic empowerment and economic benefits uh, for indigenous communities, provided we have a government that recognizes how important it is to put the legislative framework in place to make that happen. Mike, thank you so much for taking time to uh, speak with us today. I know it's a busy day and you're in for a busy couple of weeks at the very least. <laughs> yeah, the sprint, has, the sprint is starting, so it's a pleasure <laughs> to be on, Shona. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party in Ontario. He's also the MPP for Guelph. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.